could you open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1? Uh, we're going to study verses 10 through 17 this morning in our series, First Things First. So last week we learned that in spite of their many sins and problems, Paul did not start this letter of correction. I mean, it's, it's just about 16 chapters filled with correction. Now don't let that discourage you because the way it's given is magnificent and faith-building and inspiring. But he didn't do what I would do, that I spent years doing as a dad. I just came in and started with correction. He didn't do that. He started the letter by reminding them of the gospel and reminding them of the grace of God that surrounded them in the past, God's grace in the past, God's grace presently with them in Christ, and God's future grace to keep them all the way to the end when they see him face to face. He first wanted to build up the Corinthians with reminders of God's sovereign grace in their salvation, with reminders of the role of the Spirit and of God's grace in changing us, as well as the future glory that, that God had promised them. You know, the gospel of grace will always transform the way we relate to each other in every situation and circumstance. Um, including when we sin against each other, including, how do we, I just don't know that we're as, as this is just terrible language, but it, we're not as good as we should be in handling sins from one another. I don't know that in marriage, how would you kind of even evaluate yourself as husband and wife? How do you do in dealing with each other's sins? Well, this book has so much to teach us about that. And it's amazing how the answer is to keep first things first. It's to keep the cross of Christ, the person of Christ and his work on the cross central in every thought, in every decision. So as we remember God's grace always working like that in our own lives and in the lives of other believers, we're going to grow to have a heart like Paul. And wouldn't this be an awesome thing? I mean, for your kids to grow up believing this about mom and dad, for a church to grow up experiencing this from their pastors, but also with one another. A heart that regardless of how dark some of our sins are, that you've got other believers in your life that will never give up on you. Never give up on you. We're not the cancel culture that the world we live in is. We're not that. We're a bright light in the darkness. So this morning, Paul is once again going to show us how great expressions of grace and the centrality of the gospel are to be included with great declarations of correction. So we don't back away from correction. We need it. But there's a way that God wants to present it. So would you join me in reading chapter 1, verses 10 through 17 of 1 Corinthians. Hear the word of the sufficient, authoritative, inerrant, and divinely inspired word of God. Paul speaking. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, 
or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Oh Lord, the last thing we want through this sermon is for the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. Please, would you give me grace to stay true to the gospel, to stay true to the intent you had in your heart in inspiring this word, not just for the Corinthian church, but it's for Sovereign Grace Church of Midland. God, we want to know you better. We want to become more like you. We don't want to stay the same. So would you use your word to progressively sanctify us and transform us both in our character and in our purpose, in our mission, in making disciples locally and globally. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, when we were in John, um, as the book was coming closer to a conclusion, remember in John 17, Jesus prayed that his disciples would live in unity even as he and the Heavenly Father experienced unity. But, but it didn't stop there. It didn't stop with just so focused on unity. There was a so that. Man, pay, pay attention to the so that's of Scripture. Otherwise, if we don't, so often it's just going to be me and Jesus and this, this thing with Jesus is just about a personal relationship that doesn't involve anyone else. No, no. Unity has more than just our own personal happiness in mind. In John 17, Jesus says, so that the world will know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die on the cross so that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. The world would know that God sent me because in a divided world, why is it that where there's unity is among the people of God? Well, it's because of the presence of Christ in the gathered church. So Jesus was saying that a house united and a house divided has huge impacts in the world. Huge impacts in the world. How many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you grew up in a house divided? You've heard some of my story. That, that, was, that was our daily experience, my sister and I. There was little to no unity between dad and mom. Did you have that experience? Maybe is there something even, even happening today that there's too much division between husband and wife? It, it was, for some of us, it was pretty much all division, all quarreling, all splitting, all dividing all the time. A marriage divided just doesn't impact the husband and wife. Just, it doesn't. I think, we, I think we get lulled into thinking that my dispute with someone is just about that person and me. And, and no one else has any business with it, which is wrong. But, but neither does it affect anyone else. 
it's just this lulling thing. I think that's probably just the culture we live in, and it's all about me. And um, Well, you know, it affects the security of the kids. The covenant of marriage, you're going to hear this in the, in, in the weekend. The covenant of marriage, listen, it's to be illustrating the covenant of salvation. It's to be illustrating the, the unbreakable covenant that God made with us, the faithfulness that God gave to us, the blood that was shed, the, the, the unfailing, never-ending, loving covenant of God with us. That's supposed to be what's reflected in marriage. That's why God hates divorce. God loves the divorced, loves the divorced, but he hates divorce because it's telling a lie. It's telling a lie about what God would do with his bride. And God says, I'll never leave my bride. So that's our security, right? That's our security. So now, do you understand why the security of children is not just in daddy loving them or in mommy loving them? The security of the child, like the, like the covenant of salvation, the covenant of marriage is supposed to create a security for kids because dad and mom love each other. But boy, division breaks that up, doesn't it? It, it affects people beyond just the ones arguing. It impacts the lives of others. If you did not grow up in that kind of a house, I'm so thankful for that and May, may that be increasingly less, and, t- and may God grow us so that that's not happening in our homes. But how many of you have walked into a divided house? But that's uncomfortable, too. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I, I walk into a family where there's tension between husband and wife or between parent and kids, and it's ongoing. It's just become a habit. It's become a lifestyle. I just get queasy. I was talking to Jan about something yesterday, and I just... The two people arguing, and I just it around, and I just it breaks my heart. Even if people are smiling, you could still feel the tension and the division in that house. Now, how many of you grew up in a house united? So different, isn't it? So different. Didn't the unity of your dad and mom promote security for you as a son or as a daughter? How many of you have walked into someone's house united? So I grew up, so it it was funny. I now kind of get this, having raised our sons, because our house is not perfect, but thankfully it's centered on the gospel. And kids would come from that would, you know, friends of our our son's lives, and they would come into the house, and sometimes I would just get a little frustrated by how late they stayed. It's bedtime, you know? I mean, go home. I mean, what... I want to say it nicely, but can you go home? Um, and then I began to realize some of these boys were from divided households, were from households where, where going home meant yelling and raised voices and, and worse for many of them. They didn't want to go home because they found a house united. You see the impact that has. It just has an impact. You can feel it. You want to be there. There's peace and joy and purpose. A house united makes a difference to those who experience it. Now, how many of you experienced a church divided? Don't raise your hands. Do you know one of the reasons there are so many churches in Midland is not because we're great church planners. It's because there's been so many splits in Midland. I, I came... 30 years ago, as a result of a split that happened in this church. 
So I know what it is to come into that. We've experienced that many years ago. Wow, it's horrible. It's horrible. What kind of impact did that make on you? When you either experienced the church divided or walked into a church divided. You know, some of the impact it could have is that, that um, it, could, it could go so far as to tempt someone to doubt and even turn away from Christ. Because if this is the representation of Christ on earth, I, I don't want anything to do with it. How many of you experienced the church united? If you're visiting with us today. I'm not teaching this because we're a church divided. Okay, just so you know. We have the joy. We have, we have a multi-ethnic, multi-age church. But we've agreed to follow Jesus and, and to stand in the one gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not perfect at it. We can get aggravated. We can get, lose our patience. We can do all the things that, that we're growing to learn not to do. But it's a joy to, to, to walk into the, the experience of people who love each other with a love that's just not natural. A love that puts up with each other, you know? I, I told somebody this week, you know an evidence of grace? If you have trouble recognizing where God is at work in your life, here's one, you put up with me. That's God at work in your life. So be excited. That's the, maybe that's going to be the best takeaway for anybody, somebody this morning. Um, so as you saw in our text this morning, um, but it's a joy. It's Unity. It's a joy when you want to know what's causing them to do this. You want to know the God they're serving. Such a witness to others. And Jesus said it would be that way. Um, so here's why we are studying it. It's not because we're another replication of the Corinthian church. But we do live in a Corinthian culture. That's what I'm concerned about. And apparently someone else is too. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry if I do something wrong there, guys. Um, so this is my wife, Jan, if you're visiting today. And she's telling me that she thinks there's a mic issue here. Did you hear us? Can you smile? This man I love so much. Okay, let's try that. Thank you for reminding me to smile. <laughs> we live in a Corinthian culture, and there is relentless pressure upon us to be conformed to the world and not to Christ. That's why we're studying this book. It's just too easy for a church to begin to feel like a political convention more than a gathering of Christ-like peacemakers. And with the unfolding of this being a presidential election year, it's good for us to be reminded of these things so that we can impact the world with our unity rather than becoming more like the world with divisiveness. Amen. Can you say amen to that? God help us with that. So our main point this morning is in your notes. God calls us to be a house united by remembering our identity in Christ and the centrality of the cross. That's great keys 
to preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So let's start with the problem. Let's start with a house divided. Um, let's start with what, what we've been taught to, to, as we study scripture, to look for the intended redemptive effect of the passage we're studying. So can I even give you an encouragement that when you're reading your Bible each morning, be a great thing to do as you're reading, ask the Lord, Lord, show me what is the intended redemptive effect for why you inspired this particular passage. So that what he'll probably do is he'll show you something in your heart that he wants to change, or he wants to encourage, or he wants to build faith for, or give hope for, or, or give, give strength for the journey. So let's start by doing that in this passage. What is the intended redemptive effect of 1 Corinthians 10 through 17? What was the problem it was intended to resolve? And of course, the problem was division, the problem was a lack of unity. It was revealing something about the hearts of the Corinthian church. And it was revealing the impact that it was having on others. So wouldn't you just love that? That the testimony of your church is that Chloe's people are hearing about how messed up the church is. Don't you want that? Don't you want that to go out to Midland? Hey, have you heard about Sovereign Grace Church? Wow. Let's start with the senior pastor. I mean, golly. So verse 11, it's reported to Paul from Chloe's people that there is quarreling and divisions and splits among you. The word for quarreling there, interesting word. It speaks of a ripping of a garment, like a rend rending of something. It's a, it's a pretty violent word. It's not just a little disagreement. In God's eyes, he sees it as a tearing. It's a tearing. I don't, I don't know why we don't see that. God help us see that it's not just a, a little quarrel. It's a tearing of unity. The problem of division and the need or the command for unity, you've seen if you've read your Bible, it's frequently mentioned in Scripture. So it's not just here in Corinthians. It's many other places in Scripture. And it's because nothing of eternal value can be done apart from gospel-centered and gospel-sustained unity. Nothing of eternal value can be done. It impacts the quality of our care for one another. It hinders discipleship. It takes our eyes off our growth, our own growth in godliness because our eyes are on growing an army of people who agree with me. Our mission to the world is hindered because we're conforming to the world, actually confirming to the world, that we are indeed a bunch of hypocrites. You know how many people use that as an excuse. That's an, a lot of people. Oh, I don't go to church because it's filled with hypocrites. And, well, then, I mean, our answer should be, come on, you'd fit right in. <laughs> but we don't want to lend to that story. We don't want to be living in a way that confirms that statement. Here we go. I follow Paul. Well, you could, I guess, understand that there could be a temptation to do that because he planted the church. He was an apostle. I follow Apollos. Well, he passed through the church after Paul, so you could understand why he would be in some people's hearts and, and eyes. And, and he, he was regarded to be a more eloquent and more charismatic preacher than Paul in style. How about others? He said, I follow Cephas, which was Peter. 
Well, because God so powerfully used him on the day of Pentecost. He was kind of right at the opening bell, wasn't he? Even when the New Testament church was being birthed. And he was a Jew, which appealed probably to other Jews who God was saving. And then what about this one? I follow Christ. I think there's a lot of this people in Midland. Here's where I say that. These were likely people who would say, we're not guilty of following any earthly leader. They're not boasting about being a follower of so-and-so. They could come out of hearing a sermon like that. Well, well, I'm not boasting about following Paul or Apollos or Billy or Jose or whoever. But they're just humble braggers. They're boasting. You know who they're boasting in? Themselves. But they, they, they were not boasting about following any other leaders because they're boasting about the sufficiency and spirituality of themselves. I don't need pastors. I don't need organized religion. I don't need the church. I have Christ and my Bible and the Spirit. So today, you know how many people there are like that in Midland? And I think some of it is because they got, they got hurt in churches. So so is the solution to being heard in church to withdraw from the body of people that Christ bled for? No, that's not the answer. That's not the answer. But some people think it is an answer. And it can be as divisive as anyone else. But notice it doesn't say that the leaders were divided. It says that the people who were divided by the way they were putting leaders up on a pedestal so that... Um, that they should never have been on, right? They were divided by personal preference and personality and talent. And when people divide and are willing to sinfully fight against one another in regard to the leader they follow, i.e., listen to the politics, it's just going to get worse with what's going on in politics. We don't want that bleeding in the church, but the problem is twofold. They're being ruled by pride and not by humility. It's hard to be in disunity with a humble person. God make us humble. And they have an identity problem. And this is one, y'all, I think that we've not really considered. You know, we talk about the the value of having our identity in Christ. Boy, I think you're going to see this as this gets unpacked. Uh, If our identity is not in Christ, it sets us up for division. And I'll, I'll explain why here. And the, well, the text will explain why here in just a minute. Because the temptation is to try to find our identity in the star they follow rather than in the Christ who died for them. That's an identity problem. Let's, let's be thinking about that. It's a dangerous thing to not have your identity in Christ. The emphasis on these sentences is not on the name of the leader. The leaders are named, but the emphasis was on what preceded that name. Come on. I. Oh, sorry. (laughs) scared my wife. I. I follow. That's the emphasis of, of the sentences. They were radically individualistic. Just like the Corinthian culture. Paul explains that. We're going to see it in in a couple of weeks. But 1 Corinthians 3, 3 and 4. Look at that. It's in your notes. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? There's no, you're not evidencing any presence of the Spirit. 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? They weren't boasting about the leaders. They were boasting in themselves. They're using the names of the leaders to give credibility to themselves. That's the, uh, the, you just As you kind of get these categories, you'll be watching for this over these next weeks. Oh, there it is. Giving credibility to myself by who I follow and who I identify with. I will elevate myself by being identified with Paul. Wow. It's easy to do, and this is kind of a humorous way that, that it can be illustrated. You, some, this is an old story, so if, if I'm repeating it, I'm sorry. But the, the highest point total Michael Jordan ever had in a game was 69 points. Uh, it was fantastic. And there was another guy on the team named Stacy King. He was a rookie. Stacy King hit a free throw. He scored one point. And for whatever reason, somebody interviewed <laughs> Stacy King. <laughs> he scored 69 points. What are you interviewing Stacy King for? <laughs> he interviewed Stacy King afterwards, and Stacy King said this. I will always remember the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. <laughs> oh, man, if you didn't ask some follow-up questions about that, right? You've come, come away going, wow, this is something. Hey, this Stacy King. Anybody ever hear of Stacy King? Well, it's easy to exalt ourselves by attaching ourselves to a person or to a worldview or to a theology. We should cringe, guys, if we find seeds of this in our own lives as followers of Christ. And we should cringe if we find ourselves promoting things like this as leaders. Christ bore the wrath of God in our place on the cross, but we identify ourselves by celebrities? By political view? God forgive us! The idolatry in our hearts is deeper than we understand. During the Protestant Reformation, a group of people started making Martin Luther a celebrity preacher. You've heard of that? Oh, that, I thought that was a new thing. No. No, it was, it's, a, it's a 1 Corinthians thing. It's a Martin Luther thing, so much so that they began to call themselves Lutherans. Luther was incensed. I, I put the quote in your notes. Here's what he said. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people called the children of Christ chose to call themselves by my evil name? So if you're visiting with us today and you're not maybe used to this kind of a reference. So Martin Luther didn't need a hug here. <laughs> he didn't need higher self-esteem. This is the heart of a man who sees the glory of God in Christ. And apart from Christ, his life can be summarized as a bag of maggots because of sin. Because of his rebellion, putting his fist in the face of a holy and righteous God. A man who would say that my name without Christ, being, his name being given to me, 
That's, we get a new name when we enter into a covenant relationship with Christ. We get Jesus' name. We get the name Christian. But he's saying, what are they calling themselves by my evil name? And we need a dose of that today. Compared to Jesus and his glory, I am a stinking bag of maggots with an evil name, but for God, who is rich in mercy, who loved me while I was yet a sinner, who died and bled for me to make me his own. Stephen Am is a, another pastor written a Corinthians commentary, and this, I thought this was super insightful. Patronage is a means of self-validation by means of another person's success or status. People tend to attach themselves to individuals, to causes, to industries and dreams that give them a vision of the world as they think it should be. There are identity attachments to schools. Texas A&M. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I know, I just did that because I knew you would start getting nervous. Um, I wasn't rooting for Texas A&M. I was just saying there is an interesting following if you're a Texas A&M follower. Dallas Cowboys. There's just an interesting thing there, right? There are identity attachments to schools, to roles, to jobs, etc. We become fierce evangelists for political parties, for diets, for methods of parenting and education. These things give us a sense of identity and purpose insofar as they make us different than or distinct from other people. And I would add, and make us feel better than other people. Patron-based identities, wow, this is just so well said, necessarily build walls that destroy the shalom that we're seeking. Man, so good. Y'all, when we attach our identity to anyone or anything else but Christ, we begin to build walls. So where's your identity today? Is your identity in your work? Is your identity as, as a mom or as a dad, as a homeschooler, as a school teacher, as an engineer, as a preacher? Is your identity in anything less than Christ? Is it any wonder then that I'm having some conflicts with other people? Because I'm either putting people up on a pedestal they shouldn't be, or I'm looking down on them from my pedestal. It's, it's wild. We promote divisions when we build walls based on a wrong identity. Building walls tears down unity. I, I don't think many of us think of how divisive it is for us to have our identity in something or someone else other than Christ. Let's dig deeper. What does the Bible tell us about what the source is for all our troubles? And so this is part of that, why, why I'm gravitating to the people or things or, or methods that I'm gravitating toward and not to Christ. Well, there's something deeper going on from the heart. When we use the word quarrels, if you know your Bible, you should know where I'm going. Because James chapter 4 tells us what the source of quarrels are. So it's in your notes. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire 
and do not get what you want and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot get what you want, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. But then look at this, man, he comes back. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions versus spending it on the glory of God, spending it on the good of someone else. And then this little ditty from David Pallerson. Isn't this so good? Why do we quarrel? He says, cravings underlie our conflicts. So where is that true of you today? Where you have an argument problems, regular arguments with somebody, or it may not even be coming out of your mouth, but you're fighting with them on the inside. Don't we do that a lot of times? We're just having this, and we win. Every, isn't it amazing? If I just keep my fights to myself, I win every one of them. It's, it's, so, it's so horrible. It's horrible. What are you wanting and not getting? And then you think you're justified to quarrel with this person. When all along, it's a desire for something or someone else more than you desire Jesus. There's the root of why we quarrel. We fight and quarrel and divide because we want something more than we want Christ. I want respect more than I want Christ. I want appreciation more than I want Christ. I want recognition. I want promotion. I want adulation or applause. There's so many things we could want. And when we want something more than we want Christ, it's a sure sign that you've forgotten your identity in Christ. Sure sign you've forgotten your identity in Christ. So now, what about a house united? A house united by remembering our identity in Christ. So get ready for this outpouring of grace. <laughs> I mean, some really ugly stuff there, right? Then look at, look at Paul the pastor. And let's experience Paul the pastor pastoring us for the remain, well, he's been pastoring us, but let's experience how he, face, how, has he, how he addresses this. Verse 10, there's first a reminder is that their identity is brothers and sisters with one father. How often do you think about that? How often when you think of your identity in Christ, that it includes that you are a brother or a sister of a local church congregation that has God as your common father. Is that a part of your identity? The more it would be, the more we would treat each other differently. Verse 9, we, it's really, we need to go back one verse. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So guys, isn't it, by default, we, we would say this, when God called us into the fellowship of his son, not just individually, but corporately, God is calling us into the identity of having God as our father. Christ is our savior. God is our father. That's our identity. And that's why we should say brother and sister. Let me ask you this. Is it, is it just, this has been a thing about me that has been so unbiblical for so many years. I, I hesitate to say, hi, brother, or hi, sister, because of how it's just used culturally. So, I, it's, so that's wrong. It's a wrong thing. I should, be, I should be, my allegiance should be to Scripture, not being upset with culture. But do you ever call each other brother and sister as terms of endearment and terms of identity? 
because we have a common father. Christ paid the highest price possible for us to have the father of God as our, the identity of having God as our father and the identity of having each other as brothers and sisters. Jesus paid the highest price for that. So Paul says, so I appeal. It's the coolest word. Deacon, can I come down and do this with you real quick? So the word is parakaleo. And I only say this because I don't know Greek. I just read what others say about Greek. Um, but it, it's that phrase, to come alongside of, to comfort, to encourage. So here's what Paul said. He, so listen, he's just been talking to, I'm of Apollos, I'm Paul, I'm Cephas, and all this kind of stuff. And isn't there something about you that just kind of would rather do this? Kind of keep you at a safe distance from me. That's not what he does. He says, I appeal to you. Meaning, hey, I want to come alongside you in this. I want to do a head hug in this. Because there's some problems. And I want to walk with you through them. That's, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it's pretty disgusting what they were doing. And Paul actually wants to get down in the muck and mire of what they were wrestling with. Just like Jesus. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Sounds so much like Jesus. So he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Um, the parakaleo, and he calls them brothers and sisters. And again, it's not a generic, it's not a generic use. You're not my brother because we went to the same college or we root for the same team. Um, so it's even better when we think about uh, the issue of being adopted sons and daughters. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm having mic issues today. And that's mainly because of me. Um, how often do you think of yourself as an adopted child of God? The deeper you think about it, the sweeter that will be. And here's one of the things I think you'll come across. I think you'll come across this. Um, it would be easy to, to be an adopted child of God and just think of it as a legal transaction and not a relational joy. Okay, so, so I have the name of the Lord. I'm, I'm, yeah, he's, Christ paid the price, so all the legal things have been done. Justice has been satisfied. And now I'm a child of the Father, and yet my heart is still pretty dead. I th there's too many Christians who are not enjoying the blessing of relating to God as a perfect father. And it might be because you had a rotten dad or a, 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 a disengaged dad or an absentee dad, but don't blame God for it. God is a perfect father who is so passionate about your experiencing his fatherhood that one of the names of the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. You know what he does? When he comes to live inside you, he, you we'll, oh, we'll, we'll talk about spiritual gifts and all. Praise God for spiritual gifts. But we, we should talk more about this work of the Spirit. The Spirit comes and gives you a living reality that you are a child of God birthed by the Spirit. It's an experience. So some of you might get in there, oh, Billy's talking about experience. Oh, my goodness. Yes, if it's the experience of Scripture, 
the experience of what God says he wants to do in our hearts, the joy he wants to give to us, the amazement of not just being loved on the cross, but being loved by the judge becoming my father, who doesn't just give me a legal document saying I'm his, he gives me the spirit to help me experience that I am his child. Unbelievable. That's awesome, not just for you, but we have the same spirit. So there should be no argument we shouldn't be able to overcome. We have a common father who has given, given us the spirit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's that family that works through problems. We don't run away from problems. We work through them. We take up our cross and follow him. We forgive as we've been forgiven. We'll be patient until we have our last breath if it needs to be that long of being patient because that's the God who died for us. That's the spirit that indwells us. That's why we never give up on each other, amen? So A.W. Tozer said it like this. Have you ever gone to a, like an organization or even a church that said, okay, we're going to work on unity? And what they meant by that was, so here's how we're going to do unity. We're just going to try to figure this out together, okay? We're going to kind of forget that God's here. It's just going to be me and you. How, how successful do you think we're all going to be at finding unity by looking at each other? Failure after failure after failure, Right? And what's going to happen is we're going to probably negotiate the unity, which I guess you do if you're fighting a war. But we're going to try to negotiate a unity, which ultimately is reducing, trying to find the, the least common denominator of what we have in common. And don't you feel like sometimes I don't have much in common with anybody? That's not the way Scripture does unity. A.W. Tozer put it this way, if we wanted to tune 10 pianos and wanted them to be in tune with each other, you wouldn't tune them by each other, right? What would you get? Those of you musicians, what would you get to tune a piano? Tuning fork. So you would have an external standard by which all of the pianos had to bow down to. And, and that external standard would put them in perfect harmony with each other, wouldn't they? And isn't that what Jesus is for us? That's what A.W. Tozer thought. It's just so, so good. So then, so it's not just the, that family preserves our unity and the God our Father and the, the indwelling spirit of adoption. Um, which is, I would also say this, that this is Christ-centered community. That's what God wants to give us, not cliques. I think a lot of people who are in cliques think they have community. No, they don't. You just have commonality. You don't have community without Jesus being the center, the Spirit giving life to it. There's another reminder that their identity is in Christ as Lord and Savior. God is Father and Christ is Lord and Savior. So he appeals to them by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a weighty appeal, and I wonder how much you and I are thoughtful about addressing Christ, not just as our Savior, but as our Lord. It's why I just grieve over the doctrine that says, well, I'm, I'm saved, and then later on I'll decide to, to bow to him as Lord. No, child, if he wasn't Lord, he wouldn't be able to save you. 
He's Lord and Savior. He's our King. And this King has been utterly gracious to us. We owe Him our allegiance. So Paul comes alongside us and he says, listen, this is by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that in all that He is and all that He wills, He's commanding this unity. Which produces humility. We, we talked about that. We'll never have unity without humility. But when we're remembering that we serve a king who died for us, and if that doesn't drive you to your knees now and then, something needs to be examined. Then he goes, that you all agree, that you all fix your eyes on Jesus, that you all bow your knees before Jesus, that you take your eyes off yourselves and that there be no divisions among you. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, the reason we are so preoccupied with ourselves is because we're not sufficiently occupied with Christ. There's only one way to get rid of self, and that is that you should become so absorbed on someone or something else that you have no time to think of yourself. So good. But then he says that you be united. Okay, so here he is, he's coming alongside the word united was a word that if you were a fisherman and you had a good day fishing, chances are you're going to have some tears in your nets. Or if you had a bad day fishing, you're just going, you're just, all you're catching is rocks and they're tearing the nets apart. The word for united would be what you would see fishermen doing on the shore as they mended their nets. They looked at what was, cause, what was preventing them from a catch and they realized it's because there's no unity to the net. Let's fix that. Where is their disunity? And we want to be given to working on mending the nets. It's another phrase is, is a doctor setting a bone, a broken bone. The person is, is disabled, essentially, and, and the doctor wants to put the bone back together. The doctor wants to heal that part of the body. Are we net menders? Are we healers? Seeking to restore what's broken between us? Or do we politely say hello, little cheesy smile, while our hearts are totally disengaged and justifying all of our bitterness toward each other? The king is calling for obedience in mending nets and healing broken bones. And he says, let's be united in the same mind, in the same purpose. Well, when he said the same mind, you know, we had to quote Philippians 2, and, and Stephen did it for us this morning. So what's the same mind we should all have? How about, what's the same mind we should have as husbands and wives? Let's start there. What's the same mind we should have as, as parents raising children? What's the same mind we should have as fellow members of Sovereign Grace Church of Midland? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped 
But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself more by becoming obedient to the point of death. But then he humbled himself even more, even death on a cross. There's our unity. That's a unity statement. That's the mind that each of us is to have and to grow and to increasingly have in our lives. And then it's not just our identity in Christ. It's the centrality of the cross. And that's how Paul closes this section. Verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? Well, of course, no. Christ is one. Christ is all and in all in the church. Christ is not just in the party of Paul. So that's what he's saying. Is Christ divided? Is, Paul, is, is Christ just in one of these parties? Is Christ just in one of these leaders? No. Christ is one and he's in every person in the church. Paul elaborates this. We're going to study later in 1 Corinthians 12. Look at that. It's in your notes. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is in Christ. For in, let's, let's count the number of ones here. For in one spirit, we are all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Christ can't be divided. Therefore, the church must not be divided. Many differences, but no divisions. Divided body is a sick body. A divided body is a disabled body. So is there any way that you are dividing the body that Christ died to create. It's about Jesus, y'all. Are you doing anything in your attitude toward your spouse that you're actually dividing the relationship Christ died to give you? And isn't this great that he's holding out those nail-scarred hands to you to say, come, let's fix this. You and me, we can fix this. That's the hope of all this. So great. He was ripped open physically so he could join us together as a family. Then he goes to say, was Christ crucified for you? No. You know you've moved away from the centrality of the cross and the gospel of grace when you're following a personality, your identity is in someone else. Did that person bear the wrath of God for you? I mean, really, guys, what you get most excited about says a lot about where your identity is. What you're most interested in says a lot about where your identity is. And it's a process, isn't it, to, to grow out from an identity, from being rooted in people or places or things and identity in Christ, it's, it's a process to learn that. We're people of the cross. We don't divide because of sin. We forgive because of sin. We come alongside to help each other overcome sin. How dare I withhold forgiveness? How dare I not be a reconciler how dare I not offer peace to a brother or sister after what Christ has done for me? Is that your model? 
Do you always go back to the centrality of the cross? That's why this is such a powerful book, because it puts the gospel front and center in how we view and think about anything. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. So you see, this is it's all at the cross. This is all about the cross. Were you baptized? No. Baptism is a symbol. You are united with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, I'm so glad you weren't baptized in my name. That would have been horrible. I didn't die for you. I wasn't buried for you. I wasn't raised for you. You've been united with the king. That's the good news. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, this is why I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I'm going to keep that in front of you. I'm going to hammer that nail until I die. Nothing will we hear except Christ and him crucified and how that applies to all of life. And that's what the book of 1 Corinthians is about. He didn't send me to baptize. This is interesting. He also said he didn't, he didn't send me to, give, to win you by my eloquence. This is, this is really interesting. I think Tom Schreiner is who I heard say this. This is what he said. The substance of the gospel is more important than the style of the delivery of the gospel. Then he says this. Better to say something poorly than to say nothing with eloquence. And I'm afraid a lot of the internet preaching is saying nothing with eloquence. Why? There's no power in it. It might keep you attentive for a while, but is it changing your heart? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The message of the cross and makes the work of Jesus central, not the work of man. Listen, I can speak for our elders here. We don't want people, Paul would say this, we would say this, we don't want people leaving this church. Actually, we don't have much fear of people saying this. But, that, oh, what a great speaker. Is that my timer? Is that somebody's, somebody's timing? Oh, it is my time. It is my timer. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. See, you're not leaving here, right? Going, what a great speaker. He was a long speaker. Yeah, I know he's a long speaker. Not a great speaker. Oh, we don't, we don't want anybody, even the greatest preacher in our, in our team. None of us would want anyone leaving here going, oh, what a great preacher. You know what we want people leaving here going? What a great savior. What a great savior. Would you stand with me, precious ones? Stephen, would you come on back this morning? Guys, I'm going to ask if Stephen and the team is coming, would you, would you turn in your Bibles to uh, Ephesians? I think this would be a great verse to conclude with. And as they're coming, our prayer team today is Phil and Vanessa. So Phil and Vanessa, would you guys go ahead and come on now? Marcus and Michelle, would you all come on right now? And this is a little different than maybe what we've been doing before, but we want to encourage you, come and pray during the singing. Come and pray. Right now the kids are all taken care of. Come and pray during the singing. And so here's some, maybe some ways to pray. Where is there a lack of unity in your relationships? Christian relationships. Christian relationships. Where's there a lack of unity in your marriage? Where's there a lack of unity in what's happening with you and your kids? 
Where's there a lack of unity with you and someone in this church, with you and me? Boy, you know God wants to pour his spirit out today through the preaching of his word and the amazing grace that he gives us in Christ Jesus. Where have you been broken? Just because of this whole breaking of unity. It's broken you and and you've been sort of hesitant to want to reconnect because of what you went through before was so hurtful. God knows. He he, he, here's how he describes coming back and connecting again. He describes it as a healing. The way a bone gets healed when it's been broken. These precious people would love to pray for you about any of those things and anything else that you want to pray about. Let's listen to how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 4. Did I tell you Ephesians 4? I don't know if I told you. I wish we all had the same translation because I'd have us read it together. But this is, follow along, Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Julius.